you have your Bible here this morning, we're going to be uh, once again in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. But I recently read about a large office building in downtown New York City that started to show cracks up in the 42nd floor. Well, the building manager called the architect to meet him on the 42nd floor so that they could look at the problem. But when the building manager arrived, he found that the architect wasn't there. So he asked around to find out where the architect was, and he got word that the architect was in the basement. So the building manager went down to the bowels of this tremendous skyscraper, and there he found the architect. And when he did, he said, hey, what are you doing down here, man? He said, don't you know that the cracks are they're up on the 42nd floor? And the architect said, yes, that's true. But the problem begins down here in the foundation. And then the architect walked the manager over to a wall. And he said, see here, here's your problem. And they noticed that there were some bricks missing. Well, an investigation was launched and it was discovered that one of the building's janitors was chiseling out bricks. You see, this janitor was actually building an addition onto his house and each night he would go down into the basement and he would remove a brick or two and tote it home with him. And he reasoned that nobody would notice and just removing a few bricks here and there, that wouldn't hurt anything. But over a period of months and weeks, removing brick after brick gradually compromised the integrity of the structure. And as the foundation was compromised, the cracks began to show on the upper floors. Now when I read that story, I thought this is a fitting description of so many churches today who have compromised their conviction for convenience. That's exactly what has happened as we come to Revelation 2 and we look at the church at Pergamum. You might say that brick by brick, the foundation of the faith had been removed and it wasn't long before the chief architect, Jesus Christ, comes along and He points out the danger that this church is facing. Now, we have come to Pergamum and that is the third church in this list of seven. We talked about Ephesus being the church of the apostolic era. That was the church that lacked love for Christ, the loveless church. Last week we looked at Smyrna. That was the persecuted church of the second and third century A.D. That church that was fed to the lions in the Colosseum and the church of Polycarp who was burned at the stake. Now we come to the church at Pergamos and Really, all you need to know about this church is summed up in the name. For that name, Pergamos, the root word in the original language actually means a mixed marriage. So the chief problem and the chief sin of this church is wrapped up in the name because Pergamum was a church that was compromised to the world. They married themselves to the world's ways. And so they're known as the compromising church. Now, as Christians and as a church, we are all susceptible to this thing called compromise. Chuck Swindoll is a great writer, and I love the books of his that I have read, but he wrote about compromise this way. Look at what he said. 
Compromise with the world allows the slow-moving tentacles of evil to wrap themselves around us, squeezing the joys and rewards of obedience from our lives. It happens so silently, so subtly, we hardly realize it's taking place. Like an enormous oak that has decayed for years from the termites and then suddenly falls, those who permit the eroding grind of compromise can expect an ultimate collapse. He said slowly, almost imperceptibly, one rationalization leads to another and to another which triggers a series of equally damaging alterations in a life or church that was once stable, strong, and reliable. And of course it's been said that rivers and men both become crooked by following the path of least resistance. And that is compromise. Now if you want to see the problem of compromise writ large, all you have to do is study this church at Pergamum. Now in Jesus' letter here to these believers at Pergamum, we're going to find a strong warning to the church today. You will see that a lot of what Jesus talks about applies to the century that we live in now. Because we, as the church, are fighting against the constant undercurrent of the world who wants to change the church to look like the world and get us to drift away from the truth of the Word of God. Now, as you open this letter, you notice, number one, the dedicated Christians in the church. Just like He does with Smyrna and just like He does with Ephesus, Jesus addresses the positive before the negative. In this letter begins in verse 12, He speaks to the faithful remnant who has remained steadfast to Christ. Even though He says, I know that you live in Satan's city. Look what He says in verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Ancient sources tell us that Pergamum was a home base for pagan religion. In fact, there were two great monuments to the pagan gods in this city where this church existed. The first uh, was a temple to Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was the Greek god of medicine. And here's an artist's rendition of what they think this temple might have looked like back in the day. But the Greeks often depicted Asclepius as a snake wrapped around a rod. In fact, you'll probably see this symbol in hospitals and doctor's offices and on the side of an ambulance. This is the ancient Greek symbol for the god Asclepius who was known to be the god of healing. And it's still with us today. Now, in this temple of Asclepius, people came for healing. And it was operated by witch doctors or priests who offered healing, but they did it through, of course, satanic rituals. Now, Pergamon was also known for a tremendous altar built to the Greek god Zeus. In fact, here's another artist's rendition of what they think this might have looked like. It was on the city's Acropolis, or the high place in the city. It was an altar built to the god Zeus. It was one of the most famous in the ancient world. They say that it was 100 feet square by 40 feet high. And ancient 
reports tell us that when you viewed this from a distance as you came into the city, that the altar to Zeus represented a huge throne. And that is why in verse 13, Jesus said that Pergamum was the place of Satan's throne. Literally, this was a hotbed, a cesspool for the enemy and for demonic forces. And yet, we read here in this opening part of the letter that in the midst of all this idolatry and all this spiritual darkness, there was a faithful band, a small group of believers who still held fast to the name of Jesus. Don't you feel like that today in our world? Those of you who have watched this country change before your very eyes, you've seen laws passed and you've seen sin celebrated in the streets such to the point you look out on your country anymore and you say, I don't recognize the world that I live in anymore. That's where these believers in Pergamum were. The few that still believe. But I praise God that no matter how dark things get, no matter how bad things get, if you study history, there's always a remnant who will not bow their knee to the world and will still call on the name of God. And that's the way that I want to be. No matter how dark it gets, no matter what our government legislates, no matter what good they call evil and what evil they call good, I want to stand on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and hold up His gospel and preach forth His truth because, friends, this is the only hope that this world has to turn to the living Lord Jesus. It's the only answer that we've got. Government can't solve our problems. Religion can't solve our problems. Economics can't solve our problems. Philosophy and technology can't do it. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ and His power to transform lives and change hearts. The important thing is, as I study about this, is notice that Jesus doesn't forget who's faithful to Him. Did you see what He said there? In verse 13, he said, Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. There was at least one Christian in the city of Pergamos that held fast to Jesus Christ, who wouldn't deny, who wouldn't compromise for convenience. The Bible tells us that his name was Antipas. Now, if you go on a study and try and find out more about him in the Bible, you won't find him mentioned anywhere else. In fact, even secular history, his name has been lost with the sands of time. But here's the important thing that I notice. Even though the world may have forgotten him, even though they may have killed him off, God remembered his name and Jesus said, I know that one who was faithful to me. And if you are in that position today and you feel like you've been forgotten, you feel like you've been abandoned, you feel like you're the only one in your family, at your job, wherever God has placed you, who you are living for Jesus, Jesus sees your faithfulness. And that's important, right? doesn't matter what the rest of the world sees and what the rest of the world says. If God knows that you are faithful to Him, that's what we strive for. And as I read that, and I thought about that man mentioned in the text, Antipas. Uh, one publication that I try and read regularly is a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if you get this magazine or if you read it, but it talks about Christians around the world that we don't hear about in the media who are living for Jesus in hostile places. Places like China and Indonesia and the Middle East and Africa. 
And I was reading about one pastor in Vietnam, a man named Pastor Cal. You talk about being faithful to the Lord when the whole world is against you. I just want to read an excerpt of this man's testimony that was in a recent issue. Pastor Cal realized that nobody in his church owned a Bible. Now you think about that. How many of us own a Bible? And yet we don't read it. This pastor realized that nobody in his church had a Bible. But he knew that the Word of God was more precious than gold. And so he took his meager life savings to buy the few people in his church a Bible so that they could just do the simple thing of opening up the Word and reading it in their own language. Well, if you know anything about Vietnam, it's against the law for Christians in that country to have a Bible. Pastor Cal risked everything so that his brothers and sisters could have the words of eternal life. And so he had to travel out of the country. He had to travel a journey of a thousand kilometers to go and buy Bibles. Well, the story goes that when he bought the Bibles, he was full of joy. He was praising God. But as he traveled back across the border into the village where he pastored, guess what happened? He was picked up by the police. And the police confiscated all of his Bibles and they threw him in jail for three days. During his imprisonment, he was interrogated by the police. In fact, he said that they tied his arms with ropes. And they stretched him. They tore his shoulders out of socket. And they beat him. They let him go after three days. And when he left the jail, listen to this, the police asked him, what are you going to do? You know what he said? I'm going to go find more Bibles. Amen! Talk about faithfulness. How do you defeat somebody like that? Here's what he told the voice of the martyrs. He said, the Bible says that those who are faithful to Jesus should expect persecution. I have faced the police many times, but I know this, God is with me and He is not done with me. You think God knows about that faithful little pastor? He does. Do you think God knows about your faithfulness in your situation? He does. And so we need to strive to be dedicated Christians like the few who were here in Pergamum. We just sang the song, didn't we? He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees the tears that fall and He hears me when I call. So we see number one, the dedicated Christians in the church. I want to be dedicated, don't you? Then we see number two, as we read this letter, the dangerous compromise of the church. The dangerous compromise. Read in verse 14 with me. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, I think about the old-time evangelist Vance Havner. He had a great saying. It was this, The biggest danger to the church is not the woodpeckers on the outside, but the termites on the inside. And we see that the termites of compromise had begun to do their dirty work here at Pergamum. Yes, there were a few faithful in that group, but most people had compromised to these false doctrines that we read about here. And by the way, it's very interesting when you do a side-by-side -side comparison of how Satan attacked in Smyrna 
and how Satan attacked here in Pergamum. You'll remember last week when we looked at Smyrna that Satan attacked the church from the outside. He used persecution. But that wasn't too successful. The church in Smyrna passed with flying colors. But at Pergamum, the enemy reversed his tactic, and instead of attacking them from the outside, what did he do? He attacked them from the inside with corruption. Now we read here that they were infiltrated by two major groups of false teachers, one of which we've already encountered. If you go all the way back to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2 and verse 6, we read of this group called the Nicolaitans. Jesus already condemned them in the first letter. This church was taken by them. But then they were also taken by another doctrine which John refers to here in the text as the doctrine of Balaam. Now what in the world is that all about? Well, you have to have a little knowledge of the Old Testament. You'll remember that Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who offered his services to the highest bidder. In other words, he was like a prophet for hire. We've got some preachers in our country that are like that. They just want to preach because they think that they can make a dollar off of the backs of people. Well, Balaam was like that. And if you read in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, we read the story. The children of Israel are in the wilderness, and they are passing through the land of Moab. They haven't made it to the promised land yet. The Moabite king, a man named Balak, hears about the children of Israel coming through his land. And so he goes to Balaam, this prophet, and he says, I'm going to hire you, Balaam, to curse God's people so that as they pass through the land, they'll run into difficulty and they'll be cursed and they won't come back again. Well, if you read the story in Numbers, you find out that that plan backfired against Balaam. Every time he tried to curse God's people, God took the curse and turned it around into a blessing. Well, when that plan foiled... Balak, the king of the Moabites, the enemy of the Israelites, came back to Balaam. And he said, look, that didn't work. Tell me how I can hurt God's people and I'll pay you double what I paid you before. And so here's what Balaam said. He said, look, if you Moabites really want to hurt God's people, here's what you do. You get your women to seduce the men of Israel and you get them to intermarry your women with their men, and as they intermarry, they will bring their pagan gods and their pagan religious practices into the society of Israel, and you can corrupt them from within. You can have a mixed marriage. Well, that plan worked. And if you keep reading in the book of Numbers, God punished His people in chapter 25. He sent a plague on His people, those who... Uh, went about with this intermarriage, and 24,000 people died as a result of the judgment that God sent. So, now that we understand what Balaam did in the Old Testament, we can understand what was going on in the life of this church at Pergamum. The doctrine of Balaam is this. If you can't curse them, then corrupt them. That's how it works. And that's what happened in Pergamum as they compromised and they married themselves, they married Christianity to the pagan religion of Rome. Now remember, as we've gone through this series, we found out that each of the churches 
not only represented an individual congregation in the first century, but each of the churches also represent a specific epoch or time period in church history. So they're prophetic in nature. Ephesus represented that apostolic church. Smyrna represented the persecuted church of the 2nd and 3rd century. Now when you get to Pergamum, this is a picture of the church from the 4th century on through the Middle Ages. And this is the time when you begin to see the Catholic church taking power as the church is married to the state. Here's how it happened. In the year 311 A.D., there was a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian. He was the last to persecute the church during that era. Well, when he died... The empire split between east and west. And there were two leaders vying for those thrones. Constantine was in the west. And then there was another guy named Maxentius in the east. Well, here's how the story goes. On the night before an important battle, Constantine said to have looked up into the sky. And when he looked up in the sky, he saw the symbol of the cross. And then he heard a, a saying from heaven which said, In this sign you will conquer. Well, as the story goes, Constantine, when he saw the cross and he heard the saying, he thought, well, this is my message. I'm supposed to adopt Christianity. And so he got all of his soldiers together to paint crosses on their shields. His armies did go on and win a major battle at a place called Milvian Bridge. And after Constantine became the emperor, he mandated that all of his soldiers be baptized. didn't matter if they truly believed or not. He just adopted Christianity for pragmatism. And so in the year 313, he issued an edict called the Edict of Milan. And overnight, Christianity all of a sudden becomes legal in the Roman Empire. The Christians who were hiding in caves and who were persecuted and who were being fed to the lions, overnight when Constantine issued that law, all of a sudden they could come out of hiding. It was now legal to be a Christian. And what that did is it opened the door... For the church now to be married to the state. And there was never any evidence, if you study Constantine's life, never any evidence that he was truly a Christian. That he truly actually understood repentance and confession. He simply used the religion of Christianity as a way to unify his kingdom. It was for political expediency. W.A. Criswell, who was the first Baptist Dallas pastor for many years, here's what he wrote. He said, overnight Christianity became mingled with the world. The priests of Jupiter, Dionysius, Apollo, and Venus all had been paid out of the purse of Caesar. But now that Caesar was a Christian, the priests of the temples hastened to be baptized so as to remain on the imperial payroll. They turned their heathen temples into churches and they said, these are no longer images of Jupiter or Venus, these are images of the saints. The same rituals by which they worshipped the Roman gods, they now employed to venerate the Virgin Mary. Even the days of which the priests honored their pagan gods were made days on the calendar to honor Christian holy days. Heretofore, he said, humble homes, catacombs, and dungeons that had echoed with the hymns of God's children, whose singing was sometimes changed into the shouts of martyrs as they were dragged into the arenas, now had passed. The rags of persecution were changed for the plush silks of the imperial palace. And just like that, the church married itself with a secular state. And what you notice in history, it's at this point that the Catholic church is born. 
And it's here that they see the marriage of religious and political power coming together. And this is the church that ruled over Europe from the Middle Ages, from about the year 300, all the way through until really the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And then number three, as we come along in our message, I want you to see the dire command to the church. Number three, the dire command, the dangerous compromise, and the dedicated Christians. So what does Jesus tell them to do? Well, we find it in verse 16 and 17. He says this, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who received it. So notice what he says to this church at Pergamum. He says, look, if you don't repent, if you don't get rid of these false doctrines within the church, I'm coming to make war against you. That's a pretty stern message, isn't it? That the judgment of God was coming against them. Now, how do we apply this to today? Well, I think it's very easy to make that segue. This should stand as a stern warning to churches today. We have a lot of church leaders and a lot of denominations who think we can cleverly marry ourselves with the world because that's what we need to do to attract people to the gospel. To make the gospel more attractive and more palatable, we'll compromise in certain areas that people don't like so that we can draw bigger crowds, and in drawing bigger crowds, we'll get bigger tithes, and so on. That's the present trend in the American church. It's to try to make the gospel and the Word of God more attractive. So what do we do? We adopt the world's philosophies. We say, well, this works in the business world. This works as a CEO. Let's take this and put it in the church. Or this is what the world is thinking. This is what we need to put in our worship. This is the music that people like. So this is what we need to put in the church. These methods work out in the world. Why won't they work among God's people? Listen to me. This is why you see churches ordaining gay ministers. I just read an article a couple of days ago that in a few weeks the United Methodist Church is about to have a vote to decide whether they're going to allow gay ministers into their fold. Look at the compromise that's taken. That's the church that was founded by John Wesley. This is why pastors are diluting the gospel. You can step into any church across America and they will tell you, oh, Jesus isn't the only way. He's just one way among many because all roads lead to the same place. You just be sincere and love God. That's compromise. That's not right. This is why you walk into some churches and you don't know whether you're in a worship service or a rock concert. Because they have adopted the methods of the world to appeal to the flesh nature of men. And when you appeal to the flesh nature of people, guess what? You have to continue to use gimmicks and fleshly things to attract people and keep them coming back. It's like the carrot in front of the donkey. A lot of these churches, they think they're being cool and edgy, but in reality, they are committing the sin that corrupted the people at Pergamos. 
If the church marries the spirit of the age, she will be a widow in the subsequent generation. Because God will curse that church. When the church tries to be like the world, we lose our purity and our power. Didn't James talk about this? He said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Listen, you can't sit on the fence. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and think that God's going to bless that. John said this, 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world for the world is passing away along with all of its desires. I'm convinced that one reason why the church of Jesus Christ at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And I'm going to commit to you that as long as I am here, as long as you will have me, there will be no compromise on this. I can assure you that when you come to the house of God, to this place, the Word of God will be open. And we will preach it with authority and with power and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit as He allows. Because friends, let us not back down from thus says the Lord. doesn't matter what the government says. doesn't matter what the laws of the land are. I have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and give an account for my ministry. And I don't want Him to say, Why, Derek, did you back up on that? Why were you scared to preach that? Why did you compromise the truth? Oh, perish the thought. Let us hold fast to the faith once delivered for all the saints. The day that I compromise, the day that I fail to preach to you the Word of God is the day when you have my permission to pick me up by the scruff of the neck and cast me out on the street and you find you a preacher who will preach to you the Word of God and not be afraid of it. You have my permission, church, but I'm telling you, with the Holy Spirit as my witness and with my heart before God, I want to stay faithful to this Word. We can't back up, put up, or shut up. We know that Jesus has called us to be salt in this decaying world. But He also says that if salt loses its saltiness, then it is useless. It will have little influence over the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher from years ago, said this. He says, when the church tries to be like the world, our influence becomes irrelevant. But the glory of the gospel is when the church is different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Why in the world would we want to be like the world? What does the world have to offer you, friend, that will bring you hope and peace and security? Tell me what world leader helps to ease your conscience when you lay your head on the pillow at night? Tell me what doctrine or what teaching of man can help you when you have to go through cancer or stand beside the grave of a loved one or pray for a prodigal son or daughter. 
The world has nothing to offer the church. Why would we want to compromise and be like them? But we have the precious glory and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only answer to save men's souls. Why would we want to cut corners? Why would we want to dilute it? Why would we want to mix it with anything else when this is the only message that can save a dying soul, when it can revive a dead church and turn back the judgment of God on an apostate country? The world has nothing to offer us. And yet we have the very words of eternal life. We have the Savior. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the people of God. Listen to this. The church that compromises to the world will never convert the world. And the church that does the most for the gospel is the church that is least like the world. The Lord gives a promise of salvation here in the end. We saw it in those verses. Let me cover this very quickly. He says, To the one who conquers, I will give him hidden manna. What's that all about? Well, in the Old Testament, you recognize that manna was that heavenly wonder bread that came down and fed the children of Israel. In the Old Testament, it was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ to come. In fact, in John 6, after He multiplied the fishes and the loaves, what did He say? I am the bread of life. So what Christ is saying to the church, He's saying, look, rather than eating the junk food of the world, which will never fill you and satisfy you, come to Me and I will feed you and satisfy your deepest longings. And then He says here, and, and I will give Him a white stone with a new name written on it. No one knows except Him who receives it. That white stone is best understood in light of an ancient Roman custom. When an athlete would compete in a game or the Olympics, they would give them a crown and they would also give them a white stone with their name inscribed on it. It was like a trophy. And so the athlete's name was written on it. It was like a rare ticket to a VIP banquet. It was what gained them notoriety. And so Jesus borrows that imagery and He says, look, those who overcome the world, you're going to receive an invitation to come to my banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a celebration that's going to honor me and the wedding of the church together forever in glory. And so, for those who don't compromise, those are the rewards that the Lord promises to offer. Now as I close today, I finish with this story. Probably one of the best that I can think of of not compromising to the world. In its heyday, P.T. Barnum ran an amazing show. In fact, they called it the most amazing show on earth, the circus. P.T. Barnum invited Charles Spurgeon to speak at his circus. Now, if you know anything about the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon was like the Billy Graham of that generation. He was the prince of preachers and he preached to thousands every week in the London Tabernacle. Well, P.T. Barnum was a shrewd businessman. And he came to Spurgeon with a very attractive offer. He said, look, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm going to give you musical talent. And I want you to provide the preaching. I'll provide the manpower. I'll set up the tents. I'll draw the crowds. I'll sell the tickets. All I want you to do... Charles Spurgeon, is come and preach. There's one basic stipulation. He said, 
I'll pay you a fee to come preach, and then whatever money we make off the sale of the tickets, because we'll have some sideshows in there as well, whatever money we make off the tickets, I get to keep that. Now, a worldly man or a lesser man would look at that and say, who wouldn't do that? Well, Charles Spurgeon, knowing that it would be wrong to join hands with the world, wrote a letter to Mr. Barnum, and here's what he said. He said, Mr. Barnum, thank you for your kind invitation to travel with you in America. You will find my answer in Acts 8, verse 20. Very sincerely yours, Charles Spurgeon. Well, when Mr. Barnum got the letter, he opened it up. He said, Acts 8, 20, what is that? He got a Bible down, found the verse, and here's what Acts 8, 20 says. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And so I take that as encouragement for you and I. We don't have to compromise with the world. You know why? Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is powerful enough. We don't have to compromise with the world because the Holy Spirit can transform hearts and lives. We don't need gimmicks and tricks. We don't need the power of the government or the power of entertainment to help our cause. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's anybody here who is compromised in some way in your life. You heard this message about compromise. You, you know that it speaks to you. You've compromised about some area in your life. And you've given up ground to the devil. And you've married yourself to a worldly way. You can repent of that sin today. Maybe you need to trust in Christ as your Savior. Maybe you need forgiveness. Maybe you just need prayer. I don't know but the altar is going to be open and, and you come as the Lord would will.